What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love everything there is to know about you know who and more. Get off my world. It belongs to me. Get off my world. It belongs to me. I just do the best I can. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'm your host, Pat, and with your co-hosts... Kelvin. Joshua. And our special guest, the unaffiliated critic himself, an old friend of our show, Mike McDonough. Hey, guys. Always a pleasure. As our longtime fans know, (laughs) we started this podcast because we had heard about the casting announcement of Peter Capaldi being cast as the 12th Doctor, and this got us all very excited. We're long-term Doctor Who fans, but we thought, we love Peter Capaldi, he's a great actor, we should really do a podcast about it. And in fact, in our very first episode, we talked about Capaldi's first, sort of, appearance in The Day of the Doctor. It's only his eyebrows. Yes. And his his eyes. I I am familiar with the show, yes. You you have been our co-host for over three years. Right. But Peter Capaldi is now uh, gone from Doctor Who. Uh, I think we're all a little little bit uh, unhappy about this, but it is in the nature of Doctor Who fans to constantly move forward like sharks. And so we are dedicating this episode to a review of Peter Capaldi and all his works. So, as we always like to do, our first round is our temporal grace round, where we like to spend some time basking in the warmth of the things that we love about Doctor Who. So, Kelvin, would you like to start us off this week? Apparently, as of today, when this is being recorded, the most recent compilation of the 12th Doctor comics is out. Tell us more. The first chunk of uh, the year two comics, they are written by uh, Robbie Morrison and drawn by Rachel Stott. This uh, compilation is called Sonic Boom, and I don't know what, what's in it yet or anything, but what 12th Doctor comics I've read have been kind of a mixed bag. There was one story I really liked, one story I thought was okay, and another story I'm, I just I don't know if I liked at all. Temporal Grace comics. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting in the context of the other New Who Doctor comics I've read, which have been much more consistent in story quality. So, so, so like, you're highly endorsing this collection of comic books. So I would like to hope that this next <laughs> collection of the 12th Doctor comics is good. There's some hope in there. I like that. Yeah. Hope As always on this podcast, we are cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yes. Right. Now, Michael, as uh, the one of us with the least sunny disposition, which is <laughs> saying a lot. Uh, that is saying a lot. It's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Can you bring yourself to say something positive for Temporal Grace? It will take some effort, but I will give it a shot. And I have been rewatching. I can't say I rewatched all of the Capaldi era in preparation for this, but I, you know, dipped back in and watched a few episodes. I wanted to remind myself what they were about. And I've had very mixed feelings about it, but this is Temporal Grace, so I wanted to come up with something good I could say about the Capaldi era in general. And I decided what I most appreciate is that the Twelfth Doctor era celebrates the fact that being good is not the same thing as being nice. And this is something I really appreciate. I don't think we have enough heroes like that. And I say that because I like to think of myself as like that. (laughs) I just said, I am kind of a cranky person. I think my coworkers over the years would not necessarily describe me as nice. Hopefully they would describe me as good. I'm the sort of person who thinks... Being honest and being accurate and getting the job done is important, more important sometimes than having a sweet disposition. (laughs) And so the 12th Doctor is a hero I can look up to in that way. Awesome. Excellent. Joshua? I have so many emotions, guys. (laughs) This is the end of an era. And as Pat said, the 12th Doctor is our doctor in that it's this podcast's doctor. And I think if 
Jodie Whittaker is awesome, and it certainly looks that way. I think we'll all enjoy it, but I think because he was the doctor that started this podcast, he's always going to hold a special spot for all of us. So it, it has been sad to see him go, but because he's such a big fan and part of the enjoyment of having Peter Capaldi as the doctor has been his embracing of fans, all the stories you see of him visiting sick kids and the letters with Doctor Who drawings on them. And it leaves me cautiously optimistic that he may return to the fold and end up in a big finish so these cranky middle-aged podcasters can talk about his future adventures still down the road. Or and a multi-doctor adventure oh, with yeah. Jodie Whittaker and whoever comes after her. I, yeah. I, I would be really puzzled and surprised if there wasn't a 12th Doctor audio from Big Finish. I would be quite shocked, actually. It really wouldn't be a temple grace for me if I didn't squeeze in a big finish plug. <laughs> nope. Let's hope that Peter Capaldi makes it to big finish uh, while Derek Jacoby's still around because uh, any listeners who haven't checked out the Warmaster box set from Big Finish with Derek Jacoby, it's really good. And now I want to see those guys go head to head. <laughs> Certain to be discussed in the future on this very <laughs> yep. podcast. Uh, well, for my temporal grace, I'm going to move beyond Peter Capaldi. And what? <laughs> I'm sorry, Josh. Right. We all have to do it. There comes a time in every middle-aged man's <laughs> life where we have to do that. We have so, to let go of other middle-aged men. Um, <laughs> what about the middle-aged men? Yes, no. <laughs> will, no one, will no one think of the middle-aged <laughs> So for my temporal grace, I want to talk about Jodie Whittaker. Uh, there is a brief video clip of her being asked, if you could travel back in time... What gig would you watch? So what concert would she go to? And she talked about being at Glastonbury Festival in 2014. She listened to first Rudimental, which is a band I had not heard of, uh, then Elbow, whom I have heard of, and The Arcade Fire, who I have actually heard, <laughs> and then later Dolly Parton. So <laughs> who's that? <laughs> uh, and she said this was amazing, a tremendous show. And I'm stealing this in its entirety from a Facebook post from our friend Christian Erickson of the Seva team who posted this on social media a few days ago and said, for those of you who are not upset enough that the doctor is a woman, <laughs> this is a reminder she is also a millennial. <laughs> This is far younger than we usually skew on this show, but um, as uh, John Sim complained in the yeah, a few episodes ago, is the future going to be all girl? Well, we can only hope so. Okay, now we have the special topics, Dalek, and I believe Michael has a special topics, Dalek, for us to gum over. <laughs> so, since we are discussing the end and I guess the entirety of Peter Capaldi's reign as the Doctor, I wanted to raise, just kind of throw an open question to the table about whether we can see any sort of arc in the Twelfth Doctor's story. I think when he first came in, I think the Twelfth Doctor was very different from his certainly his immediate predecessors. Colder emotionally, he was much more callous uh, about how he treated other people around him, sometimes just kind of letting them die. He was not as warm a figure. I think Deep Breath, his first episode, ends with Clara trying to hug him, and he says, I don't think I'm a hugging person anymore. And then I just rewatched Twice Upon a Time, which is the episode that we're going to be discussing in this episode, and that ends with him and Bill and Nardole in this big group cuddle and it's very warm and it's very weepy and several of the last few episodes we get speeches from the 12th doctor about being kind and going back to what i was saying earlier it's like i always appreciated the fact that this doctor wasn't kind so i was trying to figure out did he go through changes where he became a fuzzier warmer doctor i'm not sure it's certainly indisputable that He's different in deep breath than he is in Twice Upon a Time. And I think the question is, was that a arc in a conventional sense? Like people have made deliberate decisions to move him incrementally from one position to the position that he occupies at the end of the Christmas special? Or was it sort of an abrupt change of approach that happened right between – Death in Heaven slash Last Christmas and The Magician's Apprentice, where he comes out on a tank 
playing uh, <laughs> an electric guitar. Uh, it certainly seemed like, oh, uh, people were not reacting well mm-hmm. to Peter Capaldi and they didn't like the way that he was treating Clara. We lost Tony, our audio engineer, at about that time. He jumped ship from Doctor Who and said, Oh, really? I don't like this. I'm not going to watch it anymore. And it's taken him about three years to even listen to our counter arguments. But I don't know. I mean, I think an actor of Capaldi's caliber can maybe smooth over some of even the rougher transitions. Mm -hmm. There's a period there at the beginning of Series 9 where he's got flashcards, right? Where Mm -hmm. Clara is trying to be like, oh, you're Mm – this is how normal human beings react or whatever, which is – I thought was kind of a nice fill for that. Yeah, and I I was going to bring that up. That strikes me as the biggest indicator within the universe that the writers were trying to show that – this is a in-universe attempt by the Doctor to change directions. At the end of Series 8, he comes to that realization, am I a good man? And he says, no, I'm a madman with a box. So it seems like there was a reset at the very end of his first series. But I think it was 100% in reality a reaction to the harsher Doctor. But he is not that much harsher than the classic series Doctors, or many of them. He's only harsh, I think, in comparison to the previous new series Doctors. I mean, the Doctor was never a hugger until Paul McGann, until a TV movie, right? Right. Maybe the second Doctor, but in a goofy, very over-the-top Well, I mean, you know, I, I would say the third Doctor was kind of huggy. He showed affection, especially toward Joe. Yeah. It was in a patronizing kind of way, but it was certainly, he showed a human level of affection. And I, I, there had to have been some fifth doctor hugging. He was usually so harried. You know yeah. what I mean? He always just like had It's like, oh, thank do. God you're alive. Uh, okay. okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was jarring from a new series perspective to see a doctor that was that callous, but that is just totally in line with the early Tom Baker performance. Mm-hmm. The whole Mummy on the Orient Express was pretty much a direct riff on the very short exchange in Pyramids of Mars. Oh, Sarah asking the doctor, why are you so callous? A man just died. But, you know, how many other people will die while we're sitting here mourning this man? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think in many ways that was intentional on Moffat's part and the audience didn't like it and they just had to change gears. I mean, that might ultimately be the explanation. You know, it may have just been that Moffat changed his mind about how he wanted to write the 12th Doctor. And I believe I have heard that Capaldi wanted to soften the 12th Doctor as well after the first season. So that's mm-hmm. sort of out-of-universe explanations for this. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was looking at it like trying to give Moffat the benefit of the doubt. And I think if we look at the 11th Doctor, I do think there's an arc there. And I think I can point to episodes that I say... That was a really important episode for the 11th Doctor to learn something important about himself and change his ways a little bit. And that's the part where I look at the the 12th Doctor's era, and I'm just not sure I can point to those episodes the same way. That I can say, oh, here's an episode where he really learned something, and he really learned a lesson, and he really changed his personality in response to that experience. I would imagine there was something happened to like all those years when he was just a professor. Before he meets Bill. Because it's not clear how long he was doing that. 600 years of hanging out with college students is not going to turn you into a nicer person. (laughs) It does if you're just a pure researcher. and Well, I guess he does lecture, doesn't he? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he he just sits there and lectures about whatever he feels like. We never do see his TAs who have to grade those papers. Well, I think if there is a character arc, it's much more disjunctive than Matt Smith. I mean, you say you can point to character moments in Matt Smith's tenure that are hinge points that would change his character in one direction or another. And that's something we'll have to talk about on a future podcast. But it seems fairly clear to me that uh, Capaldi, uh, his arc relies on those moments between the seasons. Mm -hmm. As I've already said, there's a clear difference between the end of season eight and the beginning of season nine, but there's an equally clear one between the end of season nine and season 10, whereas Kelvin Mm -hmm. has just said he's been a professor for, I don't know, 600 years teaching at uh, Oxbridge. Um, But in between there, there are a few, I would say, moments that I think, um, at least in in retrospect, can be considered hinge moments for how the character might change. And I think as, as much as I think it's a dismal episode, 
and we'll probably talk about this maybe more later, the In the Forest of the Night episode toward the end of season eight, where he's hanging out with a bunch of school kids. I remember at the time talking about it and going, I wish Peter Capaldi was doing this all the time because mm-hmm. it showed this kind of new direction toward I can be a teacher, I can be a professor, I like working with younger people and not in this spiky way that I'm I'm doing with Clara. Although, having said that, I liked that relationship more than a lot of other people did at that time. So that's one moment. And then also in, of course, the River Song episode, the Christmas episode between seasons mm-hmm. nine and season ten, really brought in a lot of emotionality. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but I think that these are episodes that we can point to and say that these had an effect on the Doctor's character uh, in the same way that maybe your Matt Smith episodes did. And strangely, an episode like The Husbands of River Song, which takes place over the course of like a day, probably had more effect than the billion years he spent smashing through the diamond wall in Heaven Sent. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he didn't have anybody to react against mm-hmm. at that point. That was just him yeah, just uh, doing his thing. Well, yeah, I think... At first, he's sort of big picture kind. And then, you know, later on, he realizes that small picture kind is also a thing. Cameo kind. (laughs) Cameo kind. Miniaturist kind. Like, we can't mourn individual deaths that are happening in our environment because we're, I'm thinking of the big picture here. You know, and then he realizes, like, you know, that maybe there is something about small acts of kindness building up to bigger acts of kindness. You know, I think there is a little mini arc even within season eight, but we would maybe have to save this for a a different podcast to Mm -hmm. to tease it out because he does learn things over the course of each one of those episodes. He's cruelest in the first two in Deep Breath and Into the Dalek where he's like, oh, you're going to die. Here, take this recording device so I can get data on your death and then we can learn how to (laughs) defeat the thing later, which is um, essentially the kind of thing that doctors do all the time. They just don't articulate it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But it's appalling to Clara, and then we'll skip over Robot of Sherwood, but then Clara learns more about the Doctor's history in Listen, mm-hmm. and he works with more people in Time Heist. And, That's and the first time we, I think we see him laughing. There's that mm-hmm. little collage at the end of Time Heist where we see them all having fun and eating takeout in the TARDIS after yeah. everyone yeah. The, the shawarma moment. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By the time we get to Kill the Moon, Calvin's favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's cruel again, but he's trying to learn how to step back and let other people make decisions for him because it's like, oh, this is an Earth person decision. Mm-hmm. This is Clara has to decide whether what to do about the, the planet. And that, of course, seems cruel, but it's cruel in a different sort of more not me kind of way, like let the other people do the deciding. And then by the time of Mummy on the Orient Express, when uh, Clara is unconscious for a while toward the end and she wakes up, and she's like, where is everybody else? He says, oh, I let them all die. <laughs> it's kind of half mm-hmm. between serious and half between funny because she's like, you didn't do that. No, of course I wouldn't do that. Who do you yeah. think I am? I mean, this is a terrible yeah. thing. But So he shows yeah. he's starting to become aware of how he's being perceived in that moment right. to make a joke about it. Yeah. And that continues through the rest of the season in the Forest of the Night, as I just said, and then also to the flashcards in at the beginning of mm-hmm. season nine. I mean, it was never the intention for him to be that cold-blooded for his entire tenure, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It's just that he came out of the gate so strong that I think it really did put a bad taste in people's mouth. I wouldn't want to overestimate how warm and fuzzy he became because there were still moments later on where this sort of startling coldness came out of him. I just rewatched the two-part Zygon story from season nine yep. because that was a story I didn't write about and therefore I didn't remember it as well as I remembered the others. And he has a line in there. It's He's with the army going to the terrorist camp. And he says something like, try to kill as few of them as possible. I still need someone to negotiate with. And it's just this very undoctor, you know, totally cold, practical line that comes out of him. It's like, oh, okay. As Pat was saying, I think the clearest arc for Capaldi is in series eight. And I think that's because it was written in a bubble without any audience response or feedback. I really don't think you can talk about his arc without incorporating this sort of outside universe interaction that modern genre shows now have with the audience and that everything is a almost immediate response to how they react. Everyone loved Capaldi's huge speech in the Zygon two-parter. And after that, I felt like they found every chance they could, even up to Mm -hmm. his death scene, which we'll talk about in the next round, to give 
Capaldi a speech. Now he was the speech doctor because everyone loved his speech. To give him those Smith Tennant monologues, mm-hmm. basically. And I mean, he's great at them, but I think ultimately I have a little disappointment that I feel like we've come to the end of the show's ability to have a doctor regenerate and short of changing the gender to have them be drastically different from their previous incarnation, which was one of the things I loved about the classic series. I think Capaldi was that test to see how different can you be right out of the gate. That was actually almost the topic, my special topic, was (laughs) how much can the doctor change before he's no longer the doctor? He raises that question in deep breath. He he has a little analogy about a broom, and he says, if you replace the handle and if you replace the brush, Mm -hmm. is it still the same broom? That is a really interesting question to talk about when you look at how different Capaldi was, and then now that we're going into the Jodie Whittaker era, you know, at what point is it not even the Doctor anymore? Or is there something the Doctor could do or become that would, like, make you guys say, that's just not the Doctor? Uh, when, he, when he becomes the bail yard. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big tent at this point, you know. I mean, when you look at the first Doctor stories, they are nothing like what the current Doctor stories are like. He's mm-hmm. he's not even, broadly speaking, very good, mm-hmm. like a good person right. in uh, an unearthly child. Now, it does change fairly quickly right there in the Daleks. He's like, I'm going to save myself and my friends, but it falls to Ian to save all the Thals. And it's really only by the time you get to Tomb of the Cybermen and well into the Patrick Troughton era that he articulates this idea that there's evil out there in the universe that needs to be fought. And so it's it's a long, slow road from this is a strange guy that people are trapped with and going to different parts of the universe with mm-hmm. to this is a hero that we're going to fight bad guys with. And from that point, things cosmetically change, you know, deeply change cosmetically, but it's still a hero fighting for the underdog kind of story after Second Doctor and going forward. And I think that's the core. As long as that's there, I felt like in the classic series, they could change the trappings a lot. He could be the cranky guy who fights for good. He could be the goofy guy who fights for good. He could be the slightly ineffectual person in a cricket outfit who fights for good. (laughs) It was the core, but you could have a lot of fun with what the outer ticks and personality was. But now it feels like you really need to keep it within a certain really tight personality boundary. Well, and, you know, John Pertwee comes in for a lot of criticism. His era does because the idea that he is fighting for, you know, kind of libertarian ideas is weird because he's hanging out with army guys all the time and he's and uh, working with the British government. And it's only that the threats are global there that makes that work, right? He can make a joke about hanging out with Napoleon and Chairman Mao and things like <laughs> these other kind of hair-raising dictators um, because it's kind of in this, this mode of comic British military television that is fighting you know, alien threats as opposed to in the real world like right now you wouldn't want the doctor to be on the side of anyone well <laughs> any world Apparently. government or military force yeah so i'm spinning off into yeah. weird directions right now but it is a special topics for another day i guess mike what you know how far he can change while still remaining the doctor because here here with capaldi they tried to do essentially what they did with uh, colin baker back in the day where they made him abrasive Mm -hmm. and and a total bastard right out of the gate with the intention of softening him over time and uh, of course colin didn't really have the chance or or rather he did abruptly between seasons two Mm -hmm. um, the long hiatus before trial of a time lord where he softened after that and a similar thing happened here with capaldi well, and I think this might be a good segue into talking about Twice Upon a Time, because I do think it comes up in that story. I think the idea of taking the first Doctor and putting him next to the latest Doctor and asking how his character changed. And, you know, what you were saying about, Pat, about how in the beginning, being good really even part of the formula. There's a scene in Twice Upon a Time where that comes up, where he says, this Earth is protected. <laughs> first Doctor says, what? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? That's not what we do. <laughs> Well, this would be good. Let's. Uh, yeah, let's... I don't think we answered that question at all. No, it's fine. <laughs> I didn't Open ended, not... just like Doctor Who. <laughs> Round three. Okay, and that takes us into round three The Feast of Stephen, in which we discuss the Doctor Who Christmas special. 
Twice Upon a Time, written by Stephen Moffat, directed by Rachel Talele. What did we make of this one, guys? This is a stray observation, but I think Moffat is the only person to write new series multi-doctor stories. Time Crash and Day of the Doctor and this. Is there another one that I'm... I think that's it. That's it. I think that's right. That's it. By now, I feel there's a certain rhythm that I recognize about a new series multi-doctor story, that you're going to have the riffs of new series versus classic series. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it in the last round, too, about their different approaches from the new series to the classic with the, you know, this world is protected, what are you talking about? All the commentary on the size of the windows and the TARDIS. There's a lot of things where Moffat puts fan voices right. into the story. As Why are argument. you advertising your attentions? Can't yeah. you stop gloating for a moment? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some of those landed for me and some mm-hmm. of them didn't. Big picture, I enjoyed Twice Upon a Time, but I was I was going to do that because it was going to be Peter Capaldi's last outing regardless. Mm. And there are many things that I did like about it as a story that I want to talk about later in our discussion. But although I was very excited to have Capaldi meet the first Doctor, and I think David Bradley does a great William Hartnell impression, uh, with, again, some caveats that I... Yeah, I mean, he does a good performance. He doesn't do a straight-out impression, because that never goes well. And he really is (laughs) here even more so than in the Mark Gatiss Adventures in Time and Space one where he plays William Hartnell playing the first Doctor. He really is kind of in idea of... The First Doctor, that Mm -hmm. as people who have watched a lot of First Doctor stuff, Mm -hmm. is never actually really there. Of course, it's cleaner, it's better acted, it's more controlled, it's just more on top of everything. (laughs) Uh, But also it, I don't know how how to explain this, but it's the first Doctor as viewed through all of the subsequent Doctors. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. we're viewing it as you're the starting point for where we are now. Whereas what Hartnell was playing was a completely new character, a completely different... He wasn't a Time Lord. He mentions Time Lords here mm-hmm. in the story, but that was not a term that existed in the first Doctor era. And as we talked about last round, he's not even really a hero at that point. So this is sort of bridging that gap, I think, that emotional gap between where uh, the first Doctor lives in the Tenth Planet and the hero Doctor that we know where it is right now. And so in that way, it's a, it's a bit of fan service. It's a bit of the old fill-in-the-gaps stuff that the Virgin and uh, BBC books used to do, like write stories to fill in things that the TV series could never quite do. Well, well the whole thing of, of the... First Doctor being just plain sexist. <laughs> I had a big yeah, problem that with that. Weird. Here's my take on it I and mean, why it extra annoyed me. I felt like it was a moment of Moffat going, hey, everybody, I've got the progressive old white man doctor. I feel like he kind of threw William, well, not William Hartnell, but the character of the First Doctor under the bus to look more progressive. I felt like it was almost an answer to why he didn't cast a female doctor. I always feel like he's answering fan criticism with his stories and that was a moment where i felt like what are you doing the first doctor never said these things so it started out kind of funny i think it was within the realm and a fine joke to have him talk about polydusting or something like that yeah then you're throwing back to the gender stereotypes of the 60s and that kind of works but it just kept going to the point where we got to this farcical thing where when he pops out of the TARDIS door and says he's going to give her a jolly smack on the rear or whatever that is. And at that point, you're Which like, is a what is going to, on? Uh, something he said to Susan in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Okay, maybe I just totally missed that. Yeah, it's another Moffat meta joke. It's it's exactly the same. Jolly good smacked bottom Mm. is something that he says to Susan in that story. But even it's, there, that has a different connotation in a relational, like a, a her grandfather. grandfather. Then it's here right. for the sake of the joke now, and I don't know. It raises more questions than it was worth, as far as I was concerned. Like, okay, make a sexist joke or two or whatever, but to really make a a point of it, like Capaldi, like reels back and rolls his eyes and says, mm-hmm. "You can't do that anymore." Yeah, it's bad enough if you're taking pot shots at the past for something that they actually did. But here, Moffat's taking pot shots at the past for something that the first Doctor was not like that. That was not what the early Doctor Who was like. And it particularly doesn't make sense now because now we have established Time Lords change gender. We are just about to introduce the first female Doctor in the show's history. It doesn't even make any sense that the first Doctor would be so unbelievably sexist. 
and say, well, women are made of glass and all this crap that he says. Well, yeah, that didn't well, like he, he doesn't seem to be familiar with the concept of lesbianism, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and things like that. And, it's one thing for Mark Gatiss's captain character to be all, oh, right. women and women. Hey, OK, that's fine. But the doctor, I think it's just the way anyone. Well, maybe I shouldn't say anyone, but just pretty much any attempt to write a first doctor story now would get caught up in all the, you know, he was a product of this other time. So this this may be the place for me to say that I am again it. I am not in favor of doing this at all. And I know there's precedent for it. We had in the fifth doctor, we had, I can't remember the actor's name, played the first doctor. Herndall? Richard Herndall. So there is precedent for it, but I am against it. God forbid any of us live long enough to see the 10th Doctor or the 12th Doctor recast as someone else. <laughs> I mean, if they announced we're going to do a new series about Sarah Jane Smith with a new actress, it's wrong. And frankly, it seems greedy to me. I mean, you've already got to know where your main character can go on forever and become someone else. We don't need to then go back and <laughs> recast each one of those individual doctors. I don't think it's a good idea. It's funny. I, I'm not sure whether I agree, I agree with you or not, because uh, part of me does, but then part of it is so well established that it happened in the five doctors and more recently in things like the Star Trek reboot, where we're seeing Kirk and Spock recast for the first time since mm-hmm. Nimoy and Shatner. I guess for me, it's all about whether it's done well or not. But in an ongoing franchise like this, it's going to be done well and it's going to be done poorly. And I guess the question is whether it should be done at all um, or you know, doing – Peter Cushing's CGI double in Rogue One, <laughs> yes. and yeah, yeah. just like, I don't it, like that it, there's a whole there's a whole like nested series of questions here. Like I I wouldn't object to a novel being written about the First Doctor and Susan and Ian and Barbara. Sure. I I couldn't. I've read a lot of them. Do I object to big finish casting David Bradley and other actors as Susan and Ian and Barbara, which is happening right mm-hmm. now and they're coming out? Uh, well, I, it's interesting, and I don't want to sidetrack us into a discussion of those audios, but I have listened to them, and it's a little connected to what Michael's saying. Without the costume and the visuals, they sound so dramatically different on those audios. It's amazing how much visual cues we take from seeing him at the South Pole from the 10th planet and in that cape and in the hat. But those audios are really strange. They're truer to the original Hartnell stories, but without the visual cues, they sound like just some weird old man. So I think it is true that these are stand-ins, and it's hard to get around that, even when you can intellectually say they do a good job. And in the case of Twice Upon a Time, it's hampered by feeling like it's not even a real accurate portrayal of the original mm-hmm. character. So if, for example, in, because it's it's well known that Day of the Doctor was originally planned to be in the Ninth, Tenth, and Eleventh Doctors, if they had recast the Ninth Doctor <laughs> and gotten <laughs> one McGregor or somebody to come the Ninth Doctor, would that have been right? I just don't think it would. That's too fresh in recent history. Yeah. Well, this sounds like a special topics Dalek yeah. for another day. <laughs> yeah, they, have, they never should have made any James Bond movies after uh, Sean Connery left. <laughs> oh. Oh. And, well, he's a and, Time Lord too. And, and, and once uh, once Babe Ruth retired, the Yankees should have shut down. <laughs> there never should have been any more Yankees teams after that point. Yes, That's, that is exactly what I was saying. <laughs> that first, guy, that first guy to play Macbeth on the Globe stage. Yeah, never, never should have been done after again. that. <laughs> I'm being very facetious, but I have some mixed feelings with that. But I have kind of a gut reaction. It's sort of like not using that as an option in certain situations is kind of like just giving up. It's like shutting down so many of your creative options that it, it seems like. Um, like, you're just kind of handicapping yourself and not really being able to write the show to its full potential. Yeah, and very broadly speaking, it sounds like Kevin's coming at it from a creative point of view. Like, well, if we have these tools, why don't we go ahead and use them so we can potentially recast the Doctors? And Michael's coming at it from a point of view of, uh, what did you say, it was greedy? <laughs> it was greedy. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it, it's and I'm not saying it bothered me that much. I just, yeah. I don't want to see Reese Shearsmith playing the second Doctor next season. Yeah. Like, I just don't. Uh, no. I guess it's still so much of a novelty for me at this point that I don't, you know, it, I, became, I don't feel like I need to have strong feelings about it. If it became it. a yearly shtick, it would be a disaster. 
What about Sean Pertweet? Do you think relations to doctors could come back and play other doctors? <laughs> yeah, I have a friend of mine who suggested that for a long time because there are several Troughton sons. There's some strong family resemblance. But you're right. We should put pins in this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're going to go I'm, down this I'm prickling hole. with pins right <laughs> now. I, I, I'd, I'd prefer recasting to doing some like weird-ass CGI thing where they try and like <laughs> put like, Troughton's digitized pins. face <laughs> on some of it. Circling back to our Rogue One discussion here. <laughs> but, all right, but how about Twice Upon a Time itself as a thing here? Kelvin mentioned being creatively handicapped, and I think to a certain extent that is a good definition of Twice Upon a Time, in that Moffat was saddled with having to put a coda on the end of his era. Really, it should have ended with the fall of the Doctor, and they had this awkward thing where they need to have a Christmas special, and I think he pretty much said, fine, I'll, I'll extend it out. Because Chris Chibnall couldn't come in and start with a Christmas special. And he'll always mm-hmm. move towards something that's fundamental to the structure of the show mm-hmm. in that case. Like, I'm going to introduce a whole new doctor that we didn't know about. Yeah. Or here, I'm going to go back to the very, very first regeneration, mm-hmm. and I'm going to incorporate that story. That's the way his creative imagination works. And it felt to me like a really creative way to fill this void that didn't need to be there. If that's a, a backhanded compliment. I couldn't help when I rewatched this, but just think how much more impact it would have been if the Doctor had just regenerated there on that devastated Cyberman battlefield and woke up as the next Doctor. No, I'm with you. I mean, broadly speaking, uh, leaving aside for the moment the merits of the story itself, which we haven't even touched upon, but for just its utility as getting Capaldi to regenerate, I think it was essentially unnecessary uh, because Mm -hmm. he had reached the point where he's going to regenerate at the end of the Dr. Falls. The idea that he didn't want to was a thing introduced in the very last moments of that story and then resolved at the end of this one in a kind of sentimental way using things like like Bill coming back and Nardle coming back and the okay, I guess Claire is here too, sort of, she came back, all right, that's fine. Uh, And then trying to (laughs) give it a little bit more weight by somehow implying that the first Doctor had the same struggle, Mm -hmm. which, uh, that's a totally new thing. Mm -hmm. So that part of things I, I felt was essentially unnecessary. It's that thing with the modern era that you kind of have to do now with that long goodbye thing, where you're saying goodbye to the whole era and you're saying goodbye to everyone who was a part of that era. Including the rusty Dalek from Into the Dalek. Yes, um, <laughs> needed which, to see that guy again. Which was done at, at you know at the end of the tenth Doctor era, but not nearly as well as I think it was done here. Yeah, I would say Moffat was very clever and did a good job filling this yeah. Christmas special. But I felt like I was really aware of the fact that he needed to drag this out by one more story. And that distanced me to a certain extent, emotionally, from Capaldi's farewell. Yeah, I just wish I'd learned more about the first Doctor. It didn't deepen or complexify his character in any way that I... Yeah, that's kind of what bothered me about it, too. And it, I kept trying to figure out, does this story influence the regeneration into the second Doctor, I guess is the important question. Because the second Doctor is kinder than the first Doctor was. Yes. So is this sort of an explanation for that? The fact that there's adventure and learn these things right before he regenerated? The new series is leaning hard into this idea that regeneration is a choice. So that makes sense, that mm-hmm. he chooses to become this person just like Capaldi gives the big speech to his future self. That he's having some sort of influence on what he becomes. So that's a new series idea. So that makes a lot of sense. Exactly why the first Doctor doesn't want to regenerate. It has this almost right to die quality. Yeah, the only does. line I can come up with is that the first Doctor says, I have the right to live and die as myself. Yeah. Which is kind mm-hmm. of an intriguing Time Lord idea that there would be some sort of push for like, no, don't regenerate. Do they have DNRs? Do not regenerate. (laughs) (laughs) But again, because these Christmas specials have to be, you know, all things to all people, they they, they kind of throw these little interesting seeds of ideas, but there's not a lot of time. Well, he does mention at one point that he's just scared, you know, which I I think is something that never really gets addressed. I mean, with regeneration, you are dying. It's not like I'm just putting on a different suit of clothes and I'm a different person now. I mean, he sends himself is dead. It's gone. It's wiped out. And it's going to be replaced by who knows what. I could regenerate into an ass. 
It's a, I don't know. <laughs> regenerate. <laughs> I don't want to do that. You know, like I mean, that's always was what I was reading into what the you know the first doctor's doing because that's never happened to him before. It's a funny philosophical choice, isn't it? Like I'm scared to regenerate, but the alternative is I'm just dead. Yeah. So somehow mm-hmm. that's scarier to me. Like I'm the same yeah. person that I was, except I'm not anymore. And and somehow that's a more frightening prospect. I, I guess the closest uh, human equivalent I could think of is like you can survive, but you're irrevocably insane. <laughs> like your mind is destroyed in some way. Is that still being alive? I mean, technically, yes. But is that really living? You know, or I, somehow so deeply paralyzed, yeah. and someone else is taking control of your body? Yeah. And it's, wow. But, okay. That that went dark. I'm sorry about that. Everything you're um, saying right now is more interesting and delves farther into that idea than the time they gave it. In well, yeah. The special. They, they have one hour. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing a lot with it. This is like an entire away, novel. Though. Is what I'm talking about yes. here. Yeah. yeah and they yeah. have to they have to reevaluate the first doctor. They have to get the twelfth doctor to the point where he can regenerate. They have to have Mark Gatiss because that's required. You gotta have uh, Mark Gatiss. We have to have a story about World War One and a story about the far future and the testimony people. Yeah. So yet another version of the afterlife from Stephen Moffat. Yes, it's his second recreation yes. of Life After Death, yeah. and more of the new series obsession with relegating the human soul to just either like resemblance or collection of memories. So according to the new series, your diary is you. Because it's your memories yep. <laughs> written down. Yeah, so. Bill says she is Bill, even though mm-hmm. what she is is the collection of memories at the moment of her yeah. death, which is fair enough, mm-hmm. frankly, but it's it's a deep philosophical concept that maybe I mean, deserves more it's space. It's kind, of, kind of an analogy for regeneration itself, what makes new versions of the Doctor still the Doctor, except his memories. Yep. They say but that as much it, in the five Doctors. For me. It, that, those things never work for me when people show up and they're sort of the person they're supposed to. It's just, it doesn't have the same emotional impact. Yeah. There's yeah. something essentialist, even atheists or whatever, who don't believe in, in souls. There's like, well, that's just not, it's just not the same person if they can be infinitely no. replicated, like the, the double Rikers on Star Trek Next Generation, you know. Right. So we've talked about Twice Upon a Time for a long time because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on. There's so much yeah, stuff. There's, there's a lot of stuff a going on. Ton in there. Is and there, yet, strangely, no plot, really, of any kind. Nope. Yeah, so I, I was wondering maybe we want to kind of wrap that part of yep. things up because uh, we're going to want to go into our next round fairly soon here. I thought the interesting things about the plot was that there were no villains. Mm-hmm. That it was fun to me to see Capaldi go, "Oh, it's not an evil plan. I guess I don't know, really know what to do with that and need to reevaluate it." It probably could have been expanded to kind of stretch its wings a little bit and develop, but uh, that I liked. I actually liked Mark Gatiss a lot in this he episode. Did a great I, job. He's I really agree. Good. I yeah. frankly, I always like Gatiss as an actor. I just don't think he's a very good writer. He's so, a better actor than a writer. Yeah, yeah. and it was very good Thank here. You. He felt a little bit like the Brigadier even before mm-hmm. we knew he was an ancestor of the Brigadier. Okay, did did anyone see that coming? Because I did not. I should have with the Cromer reference. The Brigadier makes a couple references to Cromer in old Doctor Who. Oh. Like he thinks they've been teleported to Cromer in the Three Doctors. Okay, we're deep in the weeds here, but okay. uh, but his family's from Cromer. Oh, is oh, oh the okay. Thing. I, I was spelling it in my head as C H R O M E R. I'm thinking like there's some kind of metal robot. No, no, no. C R O M E R. Yeah, okay. a place in England. I don't know the geography, but boy, that's a deep one. I didn't get that. But I mean, in retrospect, yeah. it seemed really obvious that oh, he'd be the Brigadier's dad or grandfather or something. Yeah, and that Christmas truce is kind of made for Doctor Who. I'm a little surprised I'm that no one's never been done. No before. one's exploited it before now. Yeah, I mean, there's an opera that the Minnesota Opera staged uh, just a couple of years ago on it. That's one of those things I bring up. There's to an people, Ethan Hawke movie about it. Yeah, it's one of those things I bring up to people. Pretty good like, one. What? Too. No, that never happened. Yeah. Like, no, it was a thing. I could go on about truces because they happen yeah. a lot with trench warfare, especially among white people. Yeah. <laughs> Sad to say, frankly, but yeah, as people who feel like they have some sort of connection to one another before things get really brutal in warfare, they're not terribly uncommon. They happen in the American Civil War around Petersburg. Yeah. But here, Moffat is playing on the fact that we have this idea that it is uncommon. Again, it's Moffat responding to fans who have called his approach fairy tale, and he makes yeah. the entire end of his era a defense of writing Doctor Who as a fairy tale. Yeah. 
And here is a real life situation that's like a fairy tale, which is this truce. It is. I actually didn't object to it at all. In fact, I felt the emotional. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here's me being a little distant from my own emotions, but I felt the emotional <laughs> uh, weight of it a bit because it, it is unusual. On either side of it was more horror than you can possibly imagine in warfare. And so the doctor mm-hmm. being able to bump things by a couple of hours to save a single human being mm-hmm. is like, oh, I just want to freaking burst into tears about that. You know, so that. That did it for me. I and agree. That was immediately followed up by, uh, you know, the, the sad goodbyes with Nardole and, <laughs> and Bill. Uh, so I was reclamped. I was uh, that that's me. I, I was I was yeah, I was good with this one. I suppose you could look at it as some sort of weird, intricate Rube Goldberg machine uh, Moffat came up with to give the 12th Doctor kind of a happy ending. Retcon the whole forgetting about Clara thing. Yeah, I'm not cynical enough to be bothered by that. I was all misty-eyed about it. I, I really was. I, I... <laughs> Michael was not misty-eyed about it at all. Okay, yes, I, I wasn't. Like I said, those those kind of phony reunions don't really work for me. Where it's you know it was Amy turned up in the TARDIS or a hologram of Amy or something, one that the Eleventh Doctor regenerated to. It just it doesn't have that emotional impact for me. I think I'm still not crazy about how Bill ended her entire story. So seeing this version of Bill that is and isn't Bill, that didn't work for me at all. I like Nardal. I always like to see Nardal. I think we can all agree that we like to see Nardal. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pro Nardal. And it ultimately is a mixed bag for me, but also a perfect end to Moffat's era because it is in turn mixed era. It is clever and at times really emotionally satisfying, but the other half of it is indulgent and over egged. And I mean, that is his whole era. Nice use of over egged. <laughs> Every single era of Doctor Who that has ever been or have has ever will be has had great stories and bad ones, and they're usually the same ones. <laughs> I, I was a little surprised at how little he tried to do in this episode. And I think, Josh, that comes back to that thing you were saying about how it was. It was probably an episode he would have preferred not to write. Mm-hmm. I think I went into it with higher hopes of him putting a big bow on his entire era and making his final statement about who the Doctor really is and the nature of the Doctor and all of that. And it didn't really turn out to be that. I mean, we get that monologue from Capaldi at the end. It's kind of weak, you know, weak sauce. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it was just because it was repetitive and it was it was a lesser version of the speech he gave the master in the very last episode. That should have been his balls. final speech. Yeah, that mm-hmm. worked really well. Here we we devolve into stuff that even the great Peter Capaldi cannot really rescue things like. Don't tell him your name, except the children who and the stars are right. I mean, that that just yeah. that's bad, yeah. and and that was sad mm-hmm. because I love the Twelfth Doctor, but that it was really bad. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> no, I agree. If it had ended with the Bill and Nardole group hug, I I think it would have been improved. I had to find a reason for him to regenerate in the TARDIS, so the TARDIS semi blows up, and Again. the Thirteenth Doctor appears to fall to where a cliffhanger yeah gap. can i tell you that he should stop doing that yeah. i mean well like, I, I i don't know if that he's was... just like f***ed up the tardis a that, lot is that when he blows or is up. that chibnall i think that's the scenario chibnall wanted to start with. it doesn't matter but it's also the dumb. it's also the scenario <laughs> moffat started with when uh tenant blew up there was that moment where uh the 12th doctor falls to the ground and i had this, these high hopes like he's gonna regenerate on the ground he's gonna actually die instead of the standing up highlander thing nope because it actually feels like a death when they just hit the ground it's got to be triumphant. Yeah. It's got to be Christ-like. Maybe I, I did like the out. slow like, reveal of the 13th Doctor with like the ring falling off her hand. The ring was, was a nice, nice touch. Yeah. That was nice. Uh, yeah. You know, it's that modern era thing. And this is not strictly a, a Doctor Who problem or a Moffat problem or anything like that. It's just it's got to be as huge as we can make it, which is, I think, just second decade of the 20th, first century thing that we're in. Well, we should end on something It's got to be the Infinity Gauntlet. (laughs) The universe has to explode, you know. It did have one of the funniest lines of Moffat's era, to me personally. Maybe no one else will like it, but when the first Doctor says, this is the flight deck of the most powerful 
space-time machine in the known universe, not a restaurant for the French. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> I think I, that's I, the only tear I shed was laughing at that joke. <laughs> I was quite fond of like when the, the 12th Doctor has the sunglasses on the sonic screwdriver and the first Doctor is just like, why don't you just look at it? <laughs> Take those things off your face and just look at it. <laughs> What, I liked it. I don't know. Peter Capaldi going out was always going to be emotional for me no matter what happened. And he has dealt with such kind of crummy material off and on throughout his three years on Doctor Who that the kind of, you know, half-assed leavings in his final speech was still kind of good enough for mm-hmm. me, especially because uh, there had been the emotional high note of him saying goodbye to some version of Bill and some version of Nardle and some version of Clara. Uh, if the plot had decided that they can't all be there in forms that we think that they're going to be there in, then this was good enough for me. And, you know, it was loaded onto the back of an extremely sentimental version of World War One. Uh, and a kind of conventional story that uh, is often told about World War One, but done in a legit way, uh, a legit sort of Doctor Who way. I mean, it's an important story well, because uh, yeah. because it happened and because uh, it speaks to something better about human nature. Okay, there's there's Moffat engineered weepiness, and there's Davies engineered weepiness, and given those two, fucking hell, give me the Moffat engineered weepiness. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see where. Chibnall engineered weepiness. I'm worried about Chibnall engineered weepiness. (laughs) I am really worried about Chibnall engineered weepiness. Speaking of which, I think that should probably take us into... All right. This is such a huge, sprawling topic. We have so much to say about Mr. Peter Capaldi that we are actually going to break this into two parts. So what? this, I know this is a to be continued. So uh, for now, we're temporarily signing off. Um, we'd like to thank our guest, Michael. Michael, you ha- you do some things. You write. You have a website. Tell us about it. I do. I will mention very briefly that my wife and I recently launched our own podcast. Oh, it's called Ooh. the Unenthusiastic Critic. This <laughs> is a podcast in which I sit my reluctant, sarcastic wife down to watch movies that everyone else on the planet has already seen. (laughs) So I hope people will check that out. Oh, well, we will put a link in uh, our show notes to that. That sounds awesome. Thank you, Michael. And um, we'll be back in just a few short weeks with the second half of our big final Peter Capaldi farewell. Until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying... Get off my world! If you wouldn't mind, introduce Twice Upon a Time. Yeah, then mind. for the fourth round, Josh will introduce your second special topic, Solik. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, but do we have a title for this? I think we came up with a clever name once and forgot it, and it would involve reviewing the tapes, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> yeah, there's not a Christmas, I don't know. Yeah. We didn't have, like, a Christmas round? We did, because we talked about uh, Husbands of River Song. What was, what was that? What's this is round? Anything about what the clever title was? Oh, I think it's, like, round three. <laughs> Snowflakes. I think that's what it is. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, in five minutes, I can't actually find it. Uh, give me, well, maybe not quite five minutes. Again, give, me, uh, give me two minutes, the, uh, and I can uh, find, and I can find it. Right. A Christmas cracker. <laughs> a Christmas cracker. <laughs> was that me, Kelly? Actually, a Christmas cracker is so called because it makes a popping sound when you pull it open. They're a very common party paper in England, I understand. Frequently cracked by white people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, almost there, almost there, almost there, almost there. The Feast of Stephen. Mm. Oh, oh, yeah. The Feast I was of just going to suggest that. Uh, Too late. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We thought of it a year, a year ago. ago. <laughs>